Gathering all six of our kids to the lunch table was often very crazy and chaotic. They would be called in to lunch during the day, and this was one of their favorite times of the day. They were doing school or other things, and they would run into the house and scratch and claw and fight to get into their favorite places around the table. They all, when they were little, had places where they wanted to sit, where they wanted to eat lunch. And Danae kind of got frustrated with the chaos one day, and she said, no, 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 everybody stand still, everybody back up, you're not going to be seated until you are given an assigned seat. We're not going to have this sort of chaotic lunchroom around here. And so she decided to allow Jonah who was the youngest, to decide where everyone was seated. And so Jonah lined everyone up and had a plan in mind, had a strategy in mind. And he looked at the girls and said, I have six kids, two girls, four boys. He looked at the girls, two girls, and said, I want you to sit in the middle of the table. Here's where you're going to be seated. And we had benches at that time. You're going to sit here in the middle of the table. And then he looked at Titus and Nathan, and he called them the boys. So Anna and Caris were the girls, and then Titus and Nathan were the boys. And he said, I want you to sit over there. That's where the boys sit. And so the only two left at that point were Jonah and Isaac. And so again, I have six kids, two girls, four boys. Four boys are left in this equation. And so he looked at Isaac and he said, now for the Browns. (laughs) And he said, the Browns are going to sit over here. If you don't understand that, I have two sons who were adopted from Ethiopia And so we had girls, boys, and browns at the lunch table. And Danae had to explain to them, that is hilarious, that's funny, Uh, you are different, it's kind of cool the way that you see things, but we're not going to segregate the lunch table today. (laughs) And she mixed everybody up. Well, every letter... In the New Testament, every letter in the New Testament from Acts forward at some point addresses divisions at the table. You have Christians trying to figure out how we from all kinds of different races and ethnicities, different culture, different upbringing, backgrounds, race, gender, social classes, How are we supposed to show up at the same church and act like family? How does this work out? And in every church, at some point, there developed seating charts. And according to the pecking order in the community of faith, the Jew was obviously the top dog. The Jew was bred to be religious The Jews were known as the people of God from the beginning. According to flesh, their DNA, their ethnicity, their heritage, their culture, they were the top dogs when they walked into the church. And it only made sense that they looked over at the Gentile who 
they considered separated from God, pagans according to the flesh, unclean, that they looked over at them, the sort of men and women, they would walk down the street and they would see them, they would spit at them to show their disdain. It only made sense if they were really going to be accepted, if they were really going to be on their level because their Jewishness defined religion, that they had to become more Jewish to be accepted by them in the church. And this thought was propped up in the book of Galatians. We see Paul addressing the false teaching of Judaism. Judaism taught, or Judaism, the Judaizers taught that, yeah, you believe in Jesus, you come to faith in Christ, that's all well and good, but to be really accepted by God and to really have fellowship with us in the church, you've got to take on Jewishness, which begins with the act of circumcision and continues with the Jewish traditions. You've got to become more Jewish to sit with us at church. And this teaching was propagated. It's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians to address it as a false gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Jesus plus something or anything equals nothing. It's a false gospel. And so the Gentile, as he heard and understood this viewpoint of his Jewish brother, he would begin to see. That's just Jewish privilege, the way you think about me, the, the way you act toward me, holier than thou. You have some special seat in the church. You should be up front. You should have all the leadership positions. And in the context of the church, no one really knew how to treat women at this time because they had no rights in the culture, very little rights in society. And then the question was, and what kind of role does the slave play now? He believes the same gospel that we do. Can, can he serve? Can he lead in the church? And we see in the book of James that, that the church was set up. No, the slave, you, you sit down here at our feet. And so there were seating charts in the church according to ethnicity, according to religious background. And Paul writes the book of Galatians to solve these problems of division. And he declares to us in the book of Galatians that it is only the gospel that gives every human created in the image of God dignity before others, but most of all before God by giving them status in Christ. This is how God redeems our dignity. We're all created in the image of God, but our dignity is marred by sin. God redeems that by giving us the same status in Christ as sons in the Son. As we're going to see today, that affects the way that we treat one another, where we sit. In verses 24 and 25 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is talking here about how the law is a guardian how the law is leading us to the gospel, God's commandments, the, the 600 laws that, that we see in the Old Testament, 600 plus laws that are summarized by the 10 commandments. God's law has been leading us to the gospel. 
Verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian. Notice the words, but now we've had the law. The the law taught us what God required, and the law actually separated us into peoples. But now faith has come. Faith has been unveiled. It has been revealed. And here we're going to summarize what he's talking about here by, by referring to the gospel of justification by faith. That's what Paul is talking about. Faith has come. He's talking about the gospel of justification by faith. When you have faith in the cross of Christ, you are forgiven of your sin When you have faith in Jesus' righteousness, the life that he lived for you, when you have faith in him, you are justified. You are declared not guilty of your sin by faith. When you trust in the cross alone, when you trust in Jesus' righteousness and not your own, what God says is that you are right It is as though, it is as if you have never sinned and always obeyed because in Christ, he has never sinned and he has never disobeyed and you are credited his life and death. God credits you everything you need to get to heaven. And so notice verse 25, he says, because of this, we are no longer under a guardian. A guardian was a disciplinarian. It was often a slave, he referred to here, that was given to young men. And their role was to teach them how to become men, was to guide them into adulthood. But once they became men and they were at the right age, they were given all rights to their father's inheritance, their, their father's property, their father's Home. They were given rights to these things when they became men. And so the guardian was no longer needed. And they were free from the guardian. And Paul says that's what the law has done for us to get us to the gospel. You see, there was a time where, where God's people needed the law. They needed to know what God has said. They needed to know that God was holy. They needed to know that God demanded that they were holy. But the law was just a guardian getting us somewhere. The law was leading to somewhere better, ultimately to the gospel. So how does the law get us to the gospel? The law, the Old Testament law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, the law defined sin. The law declared very clearly in the do's and the don'ts and how we are to obey and what what it meant to disobey God. The, The law declared God is holy and God demands holiness from his people. And so the law proved we were sinners because no one could obey the law perfectly. We are all law breakers. No one met the demands of the law. The demand of the law is perfection, James tells us. That if you fail or break the law in one point, you are guilty of the whole thing. It is like a pane of glass. You chip it in one spot, you, are, you have broken the whole thing. It's useless. And that's what we've done before God's law. And so the law proved that no one could be justified by the law. No one. No one had righteousness they could hold up to God according to the law. 
that allows them into heaven, that allows them to be accepted by God. And so ultimately, the law is what leads us to the gospel. The law leads us to the freedom and the life and death of Jesus. The law declares to you, you can't. Go home today and read the Ten Commandments, and you will walk away saying, I can't. I've broken most of these, if not all of them, today. I can't, but Jesus did. And when I believe in him, I'm free from the demands of the law. That's what Paul is trying to teach here in Galatians. And he says here, this is where divisions in the church begin to break down and crumble. In the freedom from the law. And in the freedom that we have in the gospel in Christ. When we we come together as the family of God, we are free from the law. And if God is not demanding his law of me, then I don't make up a law that I demand of you. If God's law, which is perfect, which is holy, which is right, and I can never obey God's law, if he has freed me from that, then the preferences, then the standard of righteousness that I have in and of myself, the things that I do for God, the church stuff, the activity that I can list out and say, look at all the things that I do. I can't demand that of you to accept you, to love you, to forgive you. No, my goal in understanding the freedom that I have in the gospel is to make sure in the way that I serve you and love you and forgive you is that you feel such freedom from me. That is how we relate to one another in the church. And so we walk in and we we see folks who are so different from us and their life this week has been so distinct from the way that we've lived our life. We see the single mom and parenting is really, really hard. And maybe her kids don't look and act the way that my kids do or your kids do. We look around and we see the self-righteous leader. We look around and we see the college student who's still trying to figure it out. We look around and we see those who, who are scarred by financial hardship. We see those who are waking up from bad theology We look around and we see those who don't have the same standing in the community that I have. We look around and we see those that dress different and maybe they are marked by a former lifestyle that is very different from my Southern Baptist, sort of a little self-righteous twit background. And we walk in and we say, no, y'all don't have to level up. You don't have to become like me. I'm going to make sure you, very different from me, your spiritual activity maybe is still in process, but I'm going to make sure you feel the freedom of the gospel. I'm going to make sure you feel the freedom of the Father's love, and I'm not going to become a new guardian for you. I'm not going to become a new law for you. This is what Paul is trying to get at when he talks about our status in the gospel. We are free from the law, and those free from the law, we want everyone else to feel that freedom. And notice why. Here is the foundation of our status, verse 26. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all 
sons of God through faith. Four, how are you free from the law? Because in Christ, you're sons. In the Son, you are sons. And it is the Son who has fulfilled the law perfectly. And when you believe in Him, positionally in Him, in Christ, His death and His life is credited to you. So you are sons by faith in the Son. That's so important here. That, that Paul roots our new status in the church, in the gospel, in sonship. Sonship is crucial to our theology, to our understanding of the gospel. And it's important here to realize he doesn't generically call us children of God. We, we can't translate the word sons there into children. It's a very important theological reason. Now, 1 John calls us children of God, and we've experienced the love of God. And if you, if you are a female here today, it is very appropriate to call yourself a daughter of God. But that's not why you get the inheritance, the rights, the kingdom. You get the inheritance, the right, the kingdom in the Son. And so then you are considered sons of God. This is your status before God. Sons in and with the Son. The son is the one who gets all of the promises of God, all of the rights to the kingdom, the inheritance of the kingdom. It is his sonship that is eternal that we will live within. And so this is why Paul calls us sons. And notice he says, as many of you, plural, sons. It is Jesus' goal to bring many sons to glory because sons are the ones who get the inheritance and so he would say to the Gentile, you are sons. He would say to the women, your status, your gender doesn't change, but your status before God is that of the son. And to the slaves, you are sons. And notice again, the requirement is by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Justification by faith. Now what's his point here? A son is accepted by the love of the father, not his obedience to the garden, guardian. Not, if, you, if you obey the babysitter, if you obey the teacher, if you disobey the babysitter, the teacher, or the guardian, the mentor that he's talking about here, you, you are loved by the father, but even when you disobey the babysitter, the mentor, the teacher, you're still loved by the Father. Why? Because you are considered sons. And the Son is loved by the Father completely. God loves His Son more than anything else, more than anyone else. And in the Son, He loves you more than anything else. No matter your disobedience or your obedience once you have faith in Him. And He's explaining here, this is how the Gentile who could not fulfill the law. He couldn't be circumcised. The, the Gentile, who didn't even have the law, this is how he is accepted. When he believes in the Son, I said it was going to be PG, now you got to explain circumcision. But when he believes in the Son, he's considered a son. The woman is given the status of the Son in the Son. The slave who was considered an outcast according to the law is considered a son in the son. 
Now, one of the tests that I, I often give here when it comes to our sonship in Christ is to ask about your prayer life. Do you really believe you are a, considered a son? You have the status of sonship in the son. Do you really believe that? Maybe today you can recount the ABCs of the gospel. Admit, believe, confess. But do you really believe that God looks upon you in the same way he looks upon Jesus, the son? Do you believe before God that you have that status? How is your prayer life? Because this is where Paul always goes with our sonship. It always gets to crying out, Abba, Father. If you really believe this is who you are, if you really believe this is what you have in Jesus, you will constantly be crying out, God, rescue me. God, save me. The same way the son in the garden who is crying out, take this cup from me. Let this pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. How is your prayer life? Do you really believe that you have this sort of status in Christ? Then you will be praying. If you have the most amazing privilege in the universe, the most amazing access to the Father in the world, it is outstanding that you can come before God, the creator of all things, the holy, righteous judge of the universe, that you can come before him as Father, that you have the same access that Jesus does before him. It, It would only make sense that you would be constantly doing that. How is your prayer life? Do you really believe that you have access to the Father? And is it unhindered access through prayer? Let me ask you this. When you are praying, are there feelings within you that say, I'm here because he wants me to be here, but I don't really know if he likes me being here. And you are reminded of past sins. Maybe you're reminded of, maybe it's your gender as you are praying to God. Maybe it is even your ethnicity sometimes. Because around here, we communicate that Christianity is a white religion. And sometimes we have folks of other ethnicity that go, yeah, I'm here with the white folks, but am I really here? What is it that's keeping you from the Father? Are you embracing that unhindered access to the Father as sons? Are you engaged? Are you boldly becoming before the throne of God? That is a test if you really believe it. Or is it just something that you've said and you've done and you've checked that box? But if you're living in the gospel, you will be living in prayer. J.I. Packer says the highest privilege of the gospel is adoption, to be called God's sons. And I would say the highest experience of the gospel is prayer. Are you there? Do you really believe the gospel? And notice he continues here. We are free because we are sons. What does that mean? Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. I want to explain to you what this sonship looks like before God. 
calls his sons, and then he paints a picture of what sonship looks like before God. He says, as many, whoever, the Jew, the Gentile, men, women, slave, free, whoever it is who believed the gospel, trusted in Christ alone, notice he says, you were baptized. Literally, the word means to be immersed and intertwined, plunged into. And he says, you have put on Christ. You, you have put on Christ like you've put, it on, put on a new robe, new clothes. He covers you, as many of you, whoever you are. Now, th- he describes a profound reality that we need to settle on here and really understand what our union with Christ is. By faith, you have been immersed into Christ, meaning you have been intertwined into Jesus before God that when God looks upon you, he doesn't see any difference between you and Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to explain here. In your status, there is no difference. You're immersed into him. You become one with him. You're united with him. You have put on as clothing, as a covering, all that Jesus is, all that Jesus is, all that Jesus has done, and all that Jesus deserves. Outside of Jesus, you are guilty and you are damned. In Christ, you are forgiven, you are accepted. And you are promised everything that is Christ. And that is true. And that is fact. And that is reality for you. And this is where the Christian life really hits home for us. This is where we live. So often we get out here and we make it about doing this, doing this, doing this, 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 over here. It's here. Is do you really believe this, that you've been united to Christ? And are you going to live here? Are you going to stay here? Are you going to be in prayer? When you read your Bible, do you understand that this is truth and this is fact about you in Christ? See, the gospel-centered life is not about changing God's disposition toward you by what you do. He couldn't love you anymore, and he'll never love you any less. So, So your life as a Christian is not, I gotta, I gotta change the way God thinks about me. No, by faith in Christ, that's settled. He loves you as the Son in the Son. No, the Christian life is this. You understanding who you are in Christ before the Father. You understanding the way God thinks about you. And you fighting to believe what God has said about you. This is when when you sin. How, How do I deal with my sin? Well, I turn from it because it's not good, but I embrace God's forgiveness and acceptance. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. And what's true of Jesus is true of me by faith. And I have to embrace that and I have to live there. And ultimately, that's going to keep me from sin. But do you believe that? Are you, are you going to be rooted there in your life the way God thinks about Jesus? When you're amazing. You get to the end of your day, and I had my quiet time, and I prayed, and I shared the gospel with five people today, and I gave my life savings to the church, and I was just so amazing today. Feel free to do that whenever you want to. We need a building. But you get to the end of the day, and wow, I was amazing. 
Well, you still have to come back to this reality that you are no more amazing today than Jesus has ever been. And it is Jesus that God accepts for you, not anything you did today or didn't do. Are you going to live there? That's when the Christian life really begins to sink. When you really understand how the gospel applies in all these areas, your sin, your success, your unrighteousness, your righteousness, God the whole time is looking upon you and delighting in you no more or no less than he delights in Jesus. But what's Paul's point here? This has to change the way that we look at others in the church. That's what he's getting at here. God sees your brothers and sisters covered in Jesus. How do you see them? That, that's what he, that is the point he's proving here. How do you see them? The way they vote? Where they grew up? Their past sins that you know about? Sort of their lifestyle? You stalk them on Facebook? How do you see them? How do you see them? Do you see them as sons in the sun? Well, that's going to affect the way that you love them. That's going to affect when there's conflict, how you forgive them. That's going to affect when they're struggling, how you're merciful to them, is the way that you see them. They've been immersed. They're covered in Christ. What's keeping you from loving them? Nothing is keeping God from loving them when they repent and they trust in Christ alone. Are you waiting to see if they prove their worth? How much they serve? How much they're willing to give for the sake of the gospel? God's not waiting on anything. He loves them in the Son perfectly because the Son perfectly obeyed. They've been crucified in Christ. What are you waiting on? For them to become more like you? Notice, Paul gets to the point, verse 28, that he's working to here. He says, we're free from the law. We're sons in Christ because we are immersed and united to Christ. And so therefore, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning there's neither the people of God who had the law or the rest of the world who didn't have the law. There's neither slave nor free. And here he uses these terms to refer to extreme social standing. Now, I want to be clear here, we don't have time to get into it, but I believe that the gospel obliterates slavery. But here he's using these terms in this culture to describe extreme social standings and the difference in a culture that these two groups of people would have as far as their rights in society. Both extremes. In the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. And then he says there's neither male or female. Again, he gets to rights in society. And we've talked about this in weeks past. Women had very little rights in society. And he says here, that when you look at the culture and you see rights, you see status, whether it's Jew, whether it's Greek, whether it's slave, free, male, or female, he says, before God, there is no distinction and there is no difference in standing. None. Sons in the Son before the Father. And Jesus stands there, as the book of Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call you brother with the same rights and the same status that he has. And what's interesting is Paul is 
He says here, you have become, notice, he says, you have become one in Christ. When he comes to status and rights to the kingdom, there is this blurring into one, meaning the most extreme divisions in society aren't there before the Father. When he comes to acceptance and comes to justification, this means that you're not only baptized into Jesus, You are immersed as one as the church. In verse 29, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. No matter if you're a Jew or you're not a Jew. You're Abraham's offspring. You're of the tribe of Abraham, who was adopted from Ur. And God told this pagan moon worshiper, I will make you into a great nation if you trust me and you believe in me. More than the stars in heaven, your people would be. More than the sand on the sea, your people will be. That's who you're going to be, Abraham. And through you, Abraham, out of nowhere, Ur, all the nations will be blessed. And they will be given the same blessings that you are, Abraham. The blessings of Abraham are ours in Christ. Because remember, Abraham was sinful. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who is perfect, who fulfilled the law for us, who trusted the Father perfectly. And God showers upon Jesus all of the blessings that were given to Abraham. And when we believe in Jesus, he gives them to us. Jew, Gentile, slave-free, men, women. And this means that we are heirs, notice, according to the promise. What Paul is saying is this was the promise all along. And one of the points he makes in Galatians is the promise came before the law. The the promise was given, and then the law guarded guarded us to the promise of Christ. Now, what this means here is No matter who you are, ethnicity, no matter your social standing, no matter your gender, when you believe, you are given the promises of Abraham. And this is the manifold, glorious wisdom of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And this is where we all stand. This is our status in Christ. And so throughout this whole uh, study sermon series, we've gone by from, from declaring that God very clearly created us different and distinct, and we have different roles and responsibilities, but ultimately it is to display the gospel, and the gospel declares that we have the same status before God, no matter who we are or where we're from. Whatever our status before men is, we have the same status before God, sons in the Son. Now, important point to make here. And a lot of people get caught up on there is neither nor. And so they will say, okay, there's no more distinctions at all. There's no more differences at all. Remember, he's talking about status before God. The gospel doesn't make us colorblind. The gospel doesn't make us androgynous. The gospel doesn't alleviate all of our differences in society. It doesn't here and now. And so what is he saying here? He's not saying stop being different. Stop being a man. Stop being a woman. Stop being a Jew. Stop being a Greek. Stop being a slave. Stop being free. 
He says there's going to be differences because of the gospel. And it is not blanding our distinctions that maximize the gospel. It is the kaleidoscope of our differences that magnify the gospel. That magnifies the gospel. When you can have Jew and Gentile who hated each other, who despised each other, and now they stand in the same blood before God, the blood of the Son, that magnifies the gospel. When you have the slay and the free, the rich and the poor, and, and, and they stand with the same rights to the inheritance that Christ has, that magnifies the gospel. There's no partiality there before the Father. That magnifies the gospel. It is understanding and seeing our differences. Male and female stand covered in the righteousness of God. We don't minimize those differences. We even maximize them by teaching about them. By pointing to them as God's glory and saying, and yeah, look how magnificent the gospel is because it saves all of us the same. And here's the point for today. There's no meme. There's no movement. There's no sports league. There's no politician that does what the gospel does for human dignity. There's none. We get caught up in all these movements and hashtags. It ain't going to work. Racism, sexism, social injustice, they don't do what the gospel does by giving us the same status and restoring our dignity. The gospel redeems each person's dignity by giving them status before God. So we, it, we reject racism. We reject it. Why? Because we believe in the gospel, white, black, by faith, have the same status before God. A few years ago, I was called, contacted by a young lady, and it was when there was a lot of raging and turmoil in our culture. She said, I, want, I, need, a, I need to hear from you what you and your church are doing to address racism. And I knew what she was doing. And it was just in a time where everybody was dealing with that and trying to figure out what to do. And here's how I responded, and she didn't like it. I said, well, in my church, here's how it works. When you're committed to calling every member to fervently be on mission for Christ, to get the gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, beginning in Richmond to the ends of the earth, you have to, racism is just dealt with. It just bubbles up. It just, you have to deal with it. Instinctively almost. Because you have to ask the question, why am I praying for this people group? Why would I give my money so people can go there and share the gospel with those people? And I said, and what happens in my church is where people's treasure is, there their heart is. And so I don't have to make a controversy in my church over racism because we're on mission together to get the gospel to every race. See, okay, never was published, never was, there was that interview was just thrown away, I guess. But that's, that's it, right? That, that's, we, we care about the nations. 
And so these issues are going to bubble up in our hearts, and sometimes we're going to deal with them directly, but most of the time it's going to be indirectly. And I have to really work on my own heart. Why would I, why would I go there? Why would I give my money to those people? Why would I do those things? And oftentimes I have to repent of those things, but no hashtag or no meme is really going to solve that. And so this is why I get so frustrated so much in our culture in these times. And by the way, I'm alienated from others when I begin to trust in other things and look to other things other than the gospel to solve these issues. It is the gospel. It is the mission of the church. And in the church, we're saved from misogyny and toxic masculinity and secular feminism. We protect from those things. Why? And how? Is it because we minimize our differences? Is it, is it because we, we try to make men lesser than what God created them to be and women the same? No. We very clearly communicate that God has designed us differently and he has made us distinct for his glory. And that addresses issues that things in the culture and movements can't address. Is that we are different and God has made us different. And a Christ-centered man understands and honors his sisters in Christ as those who have the same standing before God. And they value her opinion. And they encourage her as a co-heir in the kingdom. The gospel addresses those issues. The mission of the church addresses those issues. And Christ-centered women will, will honor their brothers. They won't be threatened by them, but they will honor them in the responsibilities that they have been given. Why? To make much of Jesus. To say God has made us different and we have different roles and we have different responsibilities and we are co-heirs in the same kingdom and I'm going to honor you as a brother. I'm going to honor you as a sister because we have the same status. In a church that genuinely cares about social injustice, meaning the image of God in all men and women and kids, we will be heartbroken at times as we look at the world. And we will, we will work, even in our own little realms, to, to, to rid the world of sinful discrepancies against the image of God. We will work, even though we may disagree on taxes and health care, no, we will work and spend and be spent to make sure every human created in the image of God hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and knows that it is the gospel that ultimately restores their dignity. This is how we address these issues as a church, by saying we're designed different, but we have the same destiny in Christ. And the most powerful reality for human dignity is a church who should show up and be saying, Hey, y'all sit over there, and y'all sit over there. Y'all go there. We'll stay here. Girls, boys, and even browns are all seated at the same table with no assigned seats. 